0: This time around, I spoke to Daisy Christodoulou. Daisy is a former English teacher and the current head of assessment at ARC schools. She also has a new job with No More Marking, an online engine to help teachers with comparative judgment assessments. Daisy is the author of two books, Seven Myths About Education and Making Good Progress. Now let me tell you, Seven Myths About Education is quite simply one of the best books I have ever read. And along with Daniel Willingham's Why Don't Students Like School, I believe it should be compulsory reading for all teachers. It really has transformed the way I teach my lessons. And if that wasn't enough, Daisy's been on University Challenge and is even famous enough to have her own Wikipedia page. Something. I can only dream of. I must make it clear from the outset that Daisy is not a maths teacher but please don't hold that against her. We're an inclusive podcast after all and anyway it turns out Daisy loves statistics. In a wide-ranging interview we covered the following things and more the importance of planning examples ahead of planning explanations and this was something of a revelation to me. If Bjork is right and we cannot distinguish between learning and performance, does this mean formative assessment is fundamentally flawed? And speaking of fundamentally flawed, what is the big problem with the use of level or grade descriptors in assessment? What can and can't we learn from student responses to multiple choice questions given in class? What advice does Daisy have for teachers creating internal assessments? Are QLAs of any use? What is Daisy's take on the current confusion over GCSE maths grade boundaries? Why does the concept of deliberate practice suggest an excessive use of past papers might not be a good idea for our year 11s? Then we delve into the fascinating area of comparative judgment and how it might well be the future of assessment. And to top it all off, Daisy suggests two great research articles to read and an excellent set of big three recommendations. Listen, if you enjoyed the Dylan William episode, and who didn't after all, then you are going to love this one. Daisy's knowledge of assessment design is breathtaking, and there are tons of things that you can use to improve the way you assess your students on a day-to-day basis in the classroom, as well as those lovely end-of-term tests. In the takeaway section after the interview, I discussed two points that I found particularly interesting. The, the importance of the examples we present to students and the possible dangers of well-designed questions actually causing misconceptions. Taking a look at the relevant research into these matters. So if that's of interest to you, make sure you stick around until the end. Indeed, since the last episode, my research page has increased in size. There are now sections on explicit instruction, cognitive load theory, problem solving, memory, testing, revision, formative assessment, improving teaching, and more. And each paper I reference has my own takeaway alongside it. You can find the page at mrbartonmaths.com forward slash teachers forward slash research. And there'll be a link to that in the show notes. I really hope you find it both interesting and useful. And if you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your colleagues. This one in particular might provide a nice audio treat for your non-maths colleagues. And it's a nice compliment to my Dylan William interview. And my usual plea, if you have time to give us a review on iTunes, then the egomaniac in me will be delighted. Anyway, without further ado, let me introduce Daisy Christodoulou. I really hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. I'm pretty sure you will do. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, Daisy, well, even though you are not a maths teacher, there is no escaping the maths speed dating questions, I'm afraid. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why?
1: So I think that my favourite number is 229 (laughs) because it is the lowest score in test cricket that's never been made by anyone.
0: Nice, 229. I like like it. So I'm taking it from that a bit of a cricket fan. Yes, definitely, yeah. That's good. I'm just wondering, now this this is going to embarrass me, but I'm wondering if 229 is a prime number as well. I could I could cheat and Google it, but that's uh, <laughs> that's, that's a good fact. I like that. That's an excellent yeah, answer. Good one. Um, all right, question number two, Daisy, then um, what was your favourite topic in maths as a student?
1: So my favourite topic was, it was really anything to do with statistics. Um, and I think the reason I like that is, uh, again, a little bit of the cricket, but also football. I liked... I like maths that you could apply to to things like football and cricket and come up with something interesting. So I love looking at things where the you know the the, the mean and the median were very different, or where you had data patterns that were you know they had sort of similar summary statistics, but underneath they were really different. But I remember there was this cricketer uh, called uh, for Sri Lanka called Marvin Atapattu. And he was famous that he'd always either score zero or 200. (laughs) So he had an average that was about 45, which is a good average. But he had a totally different sort of pattern of scores than your typical, typical sort of that player with an average of 45. So, um, yeah, I love stuff like that, like looking at looking at data and how you could represent it.
0: Flipping! I'll tell you what, Daisy. You are probably the first to describe statistics as their favourite topic. Uh, in maths. No, I'm, I'm liking this. Cause I'm a big cricket fan myself, and I'm I'm obsessed with the data behind it. And that 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 um, Sri Lankan guy. That sounds like an amazing data set there, where you can compare yeah. consistency versus average and so on. No, this is good. You, you're endearing yourself to the uh, the maths listening public here, Daisy. A very very strong start. This and h- can I just ask as well? Um, how far did you take maths as a student?
1: I gave it up at 16 as soon as I could <laughs> all, right, all right
0: things it's are going downhill I, now
1: <laughs> I did like it I did like it but um I guess I liked other things more <laughs> got it
0: got it but you've and, kind of got a bit of a recreational interest still in it
1: yeah definitely I always loved that side of it so I never gave that up
0: cool fantastic and uh, my final speed dating question for you Daisy uh, what job would you like to do if you weren't involved in education at all
1: so I think this is your spot, the theme here, but I think I'd like to have done something in, 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 in sport. So I think maybe, I mean, a sports coach probably is similar to education, but um, I think I'd like to have done something like that or sports writing. Um, so, yeah, some, some something about sort of football or, or athletics, you know, I run a lot or, or cricket, something, something involving that. Oh, fantastic. And did you uh, do you ever pursue that at all? So I played football a lot at school um, and quite a bit at university as well. Um, I still, I I write a little bit now. I've written a couple of articles for the Night Watchman. It's a cricket magazine. So I sort of stay interested in it, but but never anything really sort of formal or, 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 you know, really, really, really for my career.
0: Got it. Fantastic. Well, that that leads us beautifully on to uh, talking about your career, actually, Daisy. So can you just take us through uh, perhaps starting off uh, maybe around A-levels or university time mm-hmm. and, and then to bring us right up to date about uh, what you're up to now?
1: So, yes. Yeah, so um, I did A-levels in, what was it? I can't remember. Yeah, I did English, <laughs> English, um, history and, and Latin. And then I did a, a degree in English literature at Warwick University. Um, then I did teach first, became an English teacher. I taught for, for three years at my first Teach First School. Um, I then took a year out, did a master's in literature. I then went and taught at Pimlico School, Pimlico Academy. Um, so I was there for two years. And that was where I really got into doing a lot of work on the curriculum, on the English curriculum. And it was at that time also that I wrote my first book, Seven Myths About Education, and got really into thinking about not just the English curriculum, but curriculum in general did a lot of work at Pimlico as I say on sort of lesson plan, lesson curriculum design, what have you. Um, published my first book when I was there, Seven Myths About Education and then left Pimlico went and worked for ARC and I've been at ARC now, this is my fourth year. Uh, so I started off as research and development manager and then became head of assessment. So um, when I was research and development manager actually I worked a lot there on on the ARC English Mastery curriculum. So again kind of following over with that curriculum curriculum view and then ended up getting heavily into assessment uh, partly because I sort of got fed up with it all being monopolized by all the math teachers amongst
0: <laughs> math teachers.
1: um so thought maybe we needed some more english teachers involved um but no but got into assessment because I, I i was I really i suppose curriculum was my first love but you sort of realize you can only go so far with curriculum before you keep hitting the, the brick wall that is assessment so i just ended up I think, like, in order to do the things on curriculum I was interested in, I had to learn more and more and more about assessment, and so did and sort of reading more. And and then it just became sort of, you know, turned into my full time job. So, uh, as I like to joke sometimes, you know, I've gone from somebody who got to I got to sort of read and teach poetry for a living to somebody who stares at spreadsheets all day. So I'm not sure I made the great trade off there, but, but that's where I am
0: flipping eh? that's fantastic um, and again just just to um touch upon that uh, bringing it back to this maths theme here when you say you're staring at spreadsheets all day yeah. is there a lot of data crunching kind of going on in your day-to-day job
1: so yeah i mean my current job here head assessment at arc um we've got a phenomenal data team they are incredible um and our head of data a guy called rich davies is this total phenomenon so actually there's a lot that gets done for you here which is incredible um but there's still a lot that i guess i'm interested in and that i do and that i do kind of on, on top of that so yeah i think there is a fair bit of data crunching i think if i said that i, I actually I, I probably shouldn't say i staring at spreadsheets today because uh, one of the things that, that 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 rich and the data team here are really keen on is that we can have these really great dashboards so we don't need to be looking at spreadsheets as much and actually, the more I've got into it, the more I've realised. You know, spreadsheets, version control. You, you think spreadsheets are the answer? Actually, often they're not. Um, so, you know, better forms of d- d- data visualisation actually don't rely on spreadsheets. So, yeah, actually, I think as as a network here at Art, we, we you know we have some 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 great some great data visualisation visualisation that doesn't depend on spreadsheets. But I, I guess I do, still do spend a, a, a fair bit of time looking at them. And not just at the data from within our schools, but also nationally when you're looking at the, the sort of data sets that are produced by the government or produced by other organisations. So, yes, yeah, definitely spend, spend quite a bit of time digging into digging into those data sets.
0: Nice. And I'll tell you what, Daisy, would you mind just giving us a bit of a, an overview of, of what the ARC, well, what ARC is all about, if that's all right?
1: Yeah, so we are uh, 35 schools in London, Birmingham, Portsmouth Hastings, so 35 Academy schools, um, and they are all in areas of, of, of disadvantage, of deprivation, and the mission of ARC is so that, um, is to give every people the opportunity to go to a um, university or career of their choice. So we're very much about social mobility, about in, improving things with disadvantaged pupils... We're a mix of not just uh, we're not just secondary. We're a mix of primary and secondary, and we've got all-through schools in there as well. Um, so it's a really exciting place to work. It's full of people who really, you know, really are inspired and want to do the, the best for for people who haven't always had the best start in life so that's yeah, so a that's a brief summary
0: of what we do that's ideal fantastic yeah. uh right well uh, this is the bit of the show where we always dig into the the teaching and the planning side of things but you are you're actually our first ever english teacher um, oh, I'm on, so this is a big big, big honor big big honor yeah, yeah. this for you um so um instead of you kind of taking us through a, a step-by-step in-depth uh guide to how you plan an english lesson i wonder if you could just give us a brief overview of if you are planning an English lesson, what are some of the things that you think about, Daisy? And the reason I'm asking this is I just wonder how similar it is to how we would plan a maths lesson.
1: Yeah. yeah. So for me, the, the, the big, the big uh, rule of thumb that I always try to use is from Dan Willingham. And he says, review every lesson plan uh, by thinking about what pupils will be thinking about each moment in time. So review every lesson plan in terms of what pupils will be thinking about. And for me, when I first read that, that really just transformed everything for me. It was such a great bit of advice. And I think that applies to whatever you're teaching, because for me, for people to learn something, the definition of learning is a change in long-term memory. So if you want people to learn something, you've got to get that change in long-term memory. How do you get them to remember something? Pupils remember what they think about. Memory is the residue of thought. So, you know, essentially, if 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 you follow through that logic, if you want learning to happen, You've got to think what are the pupils thinking about every moment in time because what they think about is what they'll remember and what you remember is is learning so that for me is just a great great piece of advice um and, and like i say I, I did literally when i first read that really start using it and actually going through lesson plans and applying it to lesson plans as much as possible more specifically if you sort of dig into the actual sort of thought process of planning an english lesson i would say there is a real difference between how i would think about planning say a literature lesson or a grammar lesson and I think a lot of the grammar lessons or the writing lessons that I taught probably do have a bit in, in common with maths the literature lessons I think can, can be can be quite different so if I was teaching a literature lesson if I was say planning something on um, a novel or a play so say I was, say I was planning something on, on Oliver Twist for example if, if it's at a point where you're reading the text with the pupils or you're doing something around you're introducing that text, I, I'd always be thinking about wh- what is it? What, you know, it, it's then you're really focusing on content. You're thinking, what content do I want the pupils to know and be secure about by the end of the lesson? And so it might be if it's at the start, if you're just introducing a novel, you might be thinking about there's a, some historical context or historical content that you really want them to think about and get secure on. If you're in the, you know, more more into the novel and you're you've got into it a bit more, you might be thinking more about some of the characters. If there's a new character who's introduced, you might want to make sure that pupils are really secure on the the meaning of that on on the on the the nature of that character. You might do something on vocabulary. So I'm a big fan of the work of Isabel Beck um, of how to teach. She she writes a lot about how to teach vocabulary. So if there's a particular tricky text uh, or particularly tricky few words in the text that you're reading to focus on those so that would be the way i would be looking at trying to teach that content and the thing that i always try to focus on and that the english mastery curriculum here focuses on is to think right what's the we, we, we we end every lesson with a little plenary that's a multiple choice question and so to think right what is that multiple choice question and how can we make sure that every pupil in the class will have that important bit of information or that important bit of content that they'll have that down by the end of the lesson so thinking about all of those things, if if you're looking at a novel or a play, thinking very much about, about the content, that does sometimes mean, particularly at the beginning of a text, that you can focus on things that are quite basic, or they seem quite basic. So for example, with Midsummer Night's Dream, we'll spend a lot of time really focusing on who loves who at the start of the play. So Hermia, i better get this right now, <laughs> uh, Hermia's in love with Lysander, and Lysander's in love with Hermia. Helena loves Demetrius. But Demetrius does not love Helena back. He's in love with Hermia. And and those feel like quite simplistic facts in some ways. But if you don't get those right, it makes the rest of the play so hard to understand. And it makes all that higher order analysis that will come later so much harder if you don't know those things. So sometimes I think the beginning few lessons in a, in a, in a unit of work can, can look quite simple. But there's a reason for that. And one of the things I like to do is to say that a lesson is sometimes the wrong unit of time. So don't focus on things at the level of a lesson. Obviously, you know, you have to teach lesson, think about the lesson, but focus on the whole unit of work and even beyond the unit of work. You know, focus on the whole of Key Stage 3. Focus on the whole of the pupils' time at school because that's you need to see where every piece of the jigsaw will fit in.
0: Got it. That's. I tell you what. There's a an incredibly uh, load of parallels there, Daisy. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm like. I'm liking this already. And um, a couple of things spring to mind straight away. Can I just mm-hmm. ask you about the um, the multiple choice question at the end? And we'll dig into multiple choice questions a little bit later. But just one mm-hmm. thing I'm wrestling with at the moment, and I'd I'd love your take on this. And yeah. um, wh- where are you pitching that question at the end of the lesson? Are you pitching it as that is a a kind of hard challenge style multiple choice mm-hmm. question? Um. Mm-hmm. And is it kind of like the ultimate goal of the lesson is to to answer that question or is it kind of pitched somewhere in the middle um, of kind of like an, an average difficulty of that lesson to give you a sense? of 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 where everybody's got to if that makes sense and the reason the reason i'm asking this is there's kind of two contrasting schools of thought for this and i and i can't decide which is right there's kind of like the bjork side who's saying that and um, you should end end the lesson on a real challenging note so so the kids are mulling things over and you can kind of pushing them and always thinking but then there's the other side that says and this is kind of from from the world of psychology That says the kind of the last few minutes of an experience that you have are are the the ones that you remember when you when you look back on it. And if um I've often made the mistake, well, I think it's a mistake in the past of asking a really tricky question at the end of the lesson just to see if anybody can get it right. And the kids leave the room thinking that they failed in that lesson because um they've not managed to get the kind of challenge question right at the end. So I just wonder, firstly, I don't know if that makes any sense, but I wonder if you've got a, a take on that at all.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so I think in terms of the questions that are asked at the end of the lesson, I would err towards the sort of simpler side of it. So I would err towards them being easier questions. And it all comes down to, and this is what I write in my book a lot about, it all comes down to purpose. So what is the purpose of that question? Uh, And for me, a really crucial purpose of the plenary is to see if pupils have learnt what you've just taught them. So actually, it can be something relatively straightforward, something that you hope most pupils will get right, because you do, you are checking have they understood uh, what I what what I taught them I think there's also another purpose though, and I think though they, which also lends itself to simpler questions, which is a, a, another way that you remember things is through repeated exposure to them and to practice. Yes. So if you uh, are asking questions that the pupils know, and, and you might look at it and think oh, they find it quite easy, but there's still a function there is that the act of retrieving it from memory, the act of answering it helps to solidify it in long-term memory. So for those end-of-lesson questions, I'd err on the side of them being ones that pupils will get right. Actually, depending when they are where they are in the scheme of work, just because they're getting it right could still be a difficult question. It just means that they're well-advanced in the scheme of work and they're doing really well. However, we do also, what we do with English Mastery, is we round up every two weeks, we round up um, all of the questions from the end of a lesson, and we add a couple in and we do add in more difficult questions. Ones that build maybe on what they've they've done before. And I think when I talk about them being relatively straightforward, you know, ease and difficulty of questions is really all in the eye of the beholder. Yes. Well, not? maybe not the eye of the beholder, but it's, it's, it's all to do with prior knowledge. So even when I'm saying, oh, it's a question I think most people should get right, that still can be quite tricky. And it still might be one they wouldn't have been able to get right at the start of the, the unit of work. So I don't want people to go away thinking the straightforward multiple choice question is one that's just, uh, you know, you know it, it is just who is Hermia in love with at the start of Midsummer Night's Dream. I think that is a valuable question, but that's not the only thing multiple choice questions can do. So some of the really advanced ones we have in the English Mastery Programme is we have some which uh, essentially they'll give the point of a sentence, they'll give, they'll give the point of a paragraph, they'll give the, ex- the evidence for a par- in a paragraph. And then they'll say, what's the best explanation? And there'll be five options. So what we're doing there is trying to unpick a little bit some of the thinking, the thought processes around a point evidence explanation paragraph. And the misconception that's trying to pick up is one that we've spotted, which is that pupils often, they'll write a PE paragraph with a great point, a great evidence, piece of evidence, a great explanation, but the three won't make sense together. Yes. So... You know, they'll say things like, well, Bill Sykes is is vicious. Uh, I know that he's vicious because he drinks a lot of alcohol. And okay, maybe that's, you know, not necessarily the worst example, but you think you you need to be teasing something else out here to to prove that link. Uh, And that link's not happening. If you'd said Bill Sykes is vicious, I know he's vicious because he abuses and kicks bullseye. That's maybe the better bit of evidence for that point. So so what you see a lot of is people's picking bits of points and evidence that don't necessarily link up as well as they might. And what we try and do is create multiple choice questions that are targeting some of those issues. So multiple choice questions can be very simple. I think that there's a value in the simplicity, but they can also be, be more complex and there's a value in that as well.
0: Got it. F- fantastic. And the other thing I wanted to uh, pick up on there, Daisy, was you, you mentioned uh, Dan Willingham there. And I, I'm, I'm a huge Willingham fan, mm-hmm. but I've only re- uh, this is terrible, this, but I've only re- fairly recently in my career. It's my 12th year of teaching now and um, stumbled upon his work. And I, it's been like an absolute revelation to me. And when I was reading, um, well, rereading, in fact, your Seven Myths book, I almost got the impression that it was this whole kind of field of research out there was almost a bit of a revelation to you as well. And I wonder what stage in your career did you first kind of stumble upon Willingham's work and, and some of the other people who have influenced them, your kind of thoughts on teaching?
1: Yes, yeah, so I definitely agree. Willingham reading his work was enormously yeah it was revolutionary um, because so much of it just seemed to contradict what i had been taught at teach training. So it really was astonishing to, to read all that, with all the evidence and the backing behind it. It was, it was, it was enormously interesting. Um, and I, I read that. I think that was in. So I said to you, I taught for a couple of years. I taught for three years in my first school, and then uh, took a year out to do a, a master's. I didn't do a master's in education. I did a master's in, in English literature. But that's when I came across William's Why Don't People Like School? Why Don't Students Like School? Sorry. And and, and on all the writing on his blog and his articles there. And, yeah, absolutely was transformative. Really, really did uh, transform the way that I thought about education.
0: Well, well, this is because this this leads us into one of my favourite questions I always ask guests, Daisy. And I, I wonder if you don't mind um, <laughs> taking taking us back to a lesson that you've taught that that went badly, perhaps in the pre Willingham and pre kind of thinking about this days. <laughs> And, mm-hmm. and crucially if you can t- talk us through the lesson in as much detail as you feel comfortable and but what I'm most interested in is is what you learn from the experience
1: hmm so actually I'll talk you through one that did occur when I was at Pimlico so it was after I'd come across Willingham and it was when I was thinking very intensely about explanations and clarity of explanations because I felt this was was really important and I felt that one of the things I'd neglected previously is I probably expected pupils to discover or find things out for themselves a bit too much. And I felt that probably in the past I'd been a bit too reliant on group work. And what really frustrated me about group work is you put people into groups and I'd end up going around and talking to each group individually and I'd end up saying the same thing to each group. <laughs> And I just thought, what a, what a waste. So one of the things I resolved to do after reading Willingham and a few other things, which which told me that maybe teacher input wasn't the worst thing in the world, is I thought, right, well, so those things that I'm going around and saying to each group or those things which I may be saying a bit off the cuff, I haven't really planned them through because uh, I've not thought they're that they have they're not been represented as being that important. That actually, I'm going to give more time and attention to those. So I put and, and, I, and I was encouraged as well. I saw a thing by um, there's a piece of evidence that um, English and American teachers felt that the most important thing when teaching was pupil motivation. And there was something about Japanese teachers thinking that the most important thing was clarity of explanation. Right. So I was really trying to this was at a point where I was trying to put a lot of work into clarity of explanation. And I still think that is really vital, by the way. I think I think clarity of explanation is is really important. But particularly when I was teaching grammar, I would run into a problem again and again, which is well, what does it mean to explain a grammatical concept clearly? Does it mean that you have used The grammatical terminology correctly does it mean that you've used it in the the clearest and most logical way does it mean that you've come up with a fantastic analogy to make that clear what exactly does it mean and it felt to me like this was a bigger problem than say you know to talk about literature I I felt like actually it was much easier to come up with clear explanations of a character's motivation um, or clear explanations of the historical context of a play But when it came to grammar, it felt, well, how do I explain what the apostrophe is? How do I explain some of these things? How do I explain these very abstract words sometimes that that don't correspond to things in a pupil's experience? And I think the issue there is maybe something that maths teachers will sympathize with, that you're often trying to explain things that pupils don't have necessarily have a reference point to. So the example I always remember was talking about independent clauses and full sentences. So... I'd come up with, we'd done a few examples. We'd we done some examples of what an independent clause looked like, what a full sentence looked like, what were the differences between them. And then I said to pupils, I said, so what we've realised from this is I said that all full sentences are also independent clauses, but not all independent clauses are full sentences. And I had a Venn diagram.
0: Oh, nice, nice.
1: No, you say nice, but actually, it was, it was a terrible idea. All right, okay. <laughs> it, there was one pupil who went what, and just put her head in her hands. Oh no! <laughs> and then all the class were, up until then, I think, had been getting it. They sort of looked at that and just thought, what? <laughs> um, so I mean, look, it wasn't you know, it wasn't a car crash lesson in terms of uh, in terms of behaviour or anything. But I, I, I thought you wanted a lesson where you can tease out. The sort of the, the learning implications from yes. it, but I think what was interesting about this is, in some ways, I'd given a logically very clear explanation, and and, and what it got me really pondering on, as I say, is what do we mean by clear explanation, and why I, the reason I wanted to talk to you about it as well, because I think it does resonate a lot, hopefully, with math teachers, is that you guys don't jump to expressing things in the most logical manner to begin with, and and I think that's why I'm. I, you know, interested in the, the concrete pictorial abstract, you know, the building up of, 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 of maths concepts, is that there's something similar in grammar in that I don't think you guys would plunge straight in with the abstract representation of something. And similarly with grammar, you can't plunge in at that abstract level. You have to give pupils, a build up a lot of understanding of concrete examples of independent clauses and, f- and full sentences. And you have to build those up and when you've built those up that people are secure enough in the meaning of the abstract term independent clause, then you can go on to, to, to use those and you can go on to use more abstract representations. But you have to spend so much time getting people to understand what those mean. And for me, what is the way you do that? And, and this is where I'd say, whilst I still think clarity of explanation is important, I think there's, there's something else which goes with it, is that's where the power of the example comes in. And so the method of teaching writing that I I didn't know about then, but which I've come to since is uh, Siegfried Engelman's direct instruction program, Expressive Writing. And what's fascinating about Expressive Writing is it doesn't really have any explanations in it at all. It just has hundreds of examples. And I observe a lot of lessons of people using it now. And what I find is that sometimes people pause in it to give an explanation And even an explanation which makes perfect sense to me and is logically consistent and is clear and coherent, you can see pupils just not understanding it because they just don't know enough about what a lot of the words you're using are. So it's the same with the apostrophe. You can explain the apostrophe maybe to someone who understands all the terms of it in a coherent way, and that's a clear explanation. But if somebody doesn't know what those terms mean and isn't sure necessarily about a pronoun, that what you need is not an explanation but lots of examples. So... I think that was a lesson for me that went badly because I didn't put in enough examples. I had some, but I didn't have enough. And I skipped to the stage of an explanation too soon. And so what I've learned since then, and I think from expressive writing, is the power of examples and non-examples and just the sheer number of examples you need. And I think you reach that's how you reach understanding. It's through examples.
0: Oh, that's that's it's fascinating that you know I, I think you're absolutely right there's um there's, there's definite crossovers to maths there and i, I want to pick up on as well what you mentioned just at the end there about about non-examples because this mm-hmm. fascinate this fascinates me as well this the if, if you don't carefully think through the examples you use there's a danger of either over or under generalizing so yeah. there's a there's a, there's a, a very, and this this happens loads in maths there's a danger that you for example you, you you do something like solving linear equations and you um you you're, you're trying to get kids to solve um, standard linear equations 4x minus 1 equals 13 or something and so what you do you give them 10 different examples 2x plus 3 equals 12 5x minus 6 equals 13 all this kind of stuff the kids are nailing it left right and centre but then all it takes is for one little slight twist to come up for example it's 5 minus 2x equals 6 and because you haven't covered that in in the examples that you've given the, the, the kids absolutely fall apart so I think you're absolutely right the examples are the key but it's and again this is gonna be a really I'm gonna draw a really bad kind of analogy here but for me it's almost the same as when you, you from reading your assessment book when you are putting an assessment together you have to be careful of the kind of domain that you're choosing from you want to make sure your examples cover all the potential things that could come up for the kids otherwise you you could make the mistake of thinking they're incredibly secure in covering the examples that have come up but as soon as there's a slight twist then they're going to fall apart. Does that make any sense?
1: Completely. Yeah. And that's why I think that expressive writing is so clever. And that's why I'm a, I'm a big fan of it and go on about it such a lot, because the examples have been chosen so carefully. So let me give you an example of what I mean by that. And, and this is why I think it's so hard to expect a teacher to spend to spend this much time putting this much effort into a set of examples. Yes. That will take pupils maybe 15, 20 minutes to do. And the amazing thing about expressive writing is the thought that's gone into every example set. So let me just give you an example, an example of an example. (laughs) Um, They when they're teaching the subject, the subject of a sentence, often um, the or let's say let's say a a verb then. So if you're teaching the verb of sentence, an error I've made in the past is you come up with four or five sentences. And because maybe it's, you know, You're not thinking it through well enough or you you haven't thought about the errors the kids will make. You'll come up with a set of sentences where the verb will always be the second word in the sentence. So you'll say, uh, John runs to the shop. Jill eats chocolate. Jack likes football. And Jane is over there. And you might think to yourself, oh, the the hard one's the last one because I put is. Yes. You know, is is always a tricky one. Anything with to be is, you know, kids struggle with. So you, you've set up four sentences and you think you're making them more difficult because the last one's in an in irregular, an irregular verb. And it doesn't sound like a doing word, which is what, what kids always think. But what you haven't realised that you've done them is that the verb in all of them is always the second word. So what you don't realise is any pupil who, if they mistakenly get the rule is, oh, the verb's always the second word in a sentence. Yes. They're stuck. And you give them then the sentence, the old horse gallops around the field. And they all go, yep, yeah, we know the verb, it's old. Yes. Right? So what expressive writing does so cleverly is it takes into account so much of that. And it will set up examples. It will deliberately, the, at least the third or the fourth one in any set, will be targeting that kind of misconception. So it will never set up a set where you can fall into that kind of trap. It, it will always have examples that are breaking the rule. So you, you can't you can't fall into those traps. And that's an incredibly hard thing to do, and, oh. and it's something you, you you can't do it just the night before. As I say, I, I would think I was doing it by, by throwing in is at the end. <laughs> Actually, there's other traps you're falling into. So, and, and the same would be true, I would imagine, completely of maths as oh, you just 100. just subtraction of like a negative number is going to completely throw pupils
0: a hundred percent and i think i think you've, you've stumbled upon something um, something massive here daisy that i think certainly when, when i do my plan well a, a little bit of a life story here my, my kind of evolution of planning has gone from i started off just spending hours building flipping powerpoint resources with fancy animations hours and hours <laughs> and hours ab- absolute waste of time my next kind of evolution was then planning questions so i would always um much rather spend my time thinking of good questions because i could use <laughs> questions for an yeah. assessment for learning and all that kind of thing yeah then I, but then I, re, I realized well i thought that explanations were, were the key thing and this was all because <laughs> yeah. i've been reading yeah. about how important knowledge was <laughs> so I thought i've got to get the clarity yeah. of explanations right but i think you're right because the best explanation in the world backed up by examples that don't cover everything or that allow kids i think the key is allow kids to get those examples right while still holding misconceptions mm-hmm. makes the explanation potentially invalid so would you say that that the planning should start with the examples that's where the planning should should begin
1: yeah i think that's a really interesting point yeah and i, I do think there are subject differences so i thought for, for, for grammar for writing definitely I feel for what I know about maths. Yeah, definitely. And I also think this because, and and, you know, one of the things I talk about in my book is just how vague prose descriptors can be. Yes. So you have a prose descriptor like can compare fractions to see which one is bigger. Yes. But just depending on the actual examples you populate that with, that's a radically easy or harder question. Yes. All dependent on the examples. So I think just to know yourself exactly what it is you want your pupils to understand, to be thinking in terms of examples is really helpful. So similarly, to go to give another grammar example, John runs to the shop. I can get most pupils to understand a sentence, a similar sentence to that, to understand the verb in it. John goes for a run. Most pupils, you ask them what's the verb in that sentence, they'll say run. Yes. And so 90 percent of pupils will get get John runs to the shop. They'll get the verb in that sentence. And 90 percent won't get the verb in John goes for a run or even worse. John went for a run. So John goes for a run. They might see some things up with goes. But John went for a run went just doesn't fit into the schema of a verb being active. If she was went
0: was went the correct answer for that is went the verb yeah. there. Oh god Daisy flipping I can't, I'm nodding along here thinking I've got it right. Oh gee <laughs> <laughs> Flipping heck. Right, I see. Yeah, <laughs> went, no absolutely. Went the
1: verb. Yeah, John went for a run, went's the verb.
0: Yeah, no, I was struggling
1: with that one, I'll be honest. Okay, yeah, <laughs> no, it's, it's tough. It's tough. It's not easy. It, and it's 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 the same as maths. It's very abstract. It becomes very abstract and Obviously, the way you start to teach things, understandably, is you teach them, to, you try and make them less abstract. So you yes. say, well, the verbs are doing word. And I know why people start like that. And it's it, it gives you a way in. But then you say a verb is a doing word. And then kids say, right, gymnastics, that's a verb.
0: Yes. Because yes. it
1: involves doing stuff. So all of these things, it's how do you get to that level of abstraction? And it's hard. It's really hard. And I, as I say, I think the, 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 the way into that kind of abstraction is through examples. As I say, I do think it is slightly different when you're teaching literature. And, and I, 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 do, I do think as well that the, one of the things when you, when you dig into curriculum and all the research and one of the things when you start to accept that there, if you like, there are these generic skills that are available to us. I think a logical conclusion of that is that subjects are very different and have very different needs. And the weird thing about English is what we term as the school subject English is really two subjects sort of welded together. It's, it's really it's sort of literature and, and, and grammar. And those are very different themselves. So I'm all about looking at the subject and looking at the content and making the right decisions based on that. And that's not to say there aren't general principles. There are general principles. And I think that the general principle of examples being powerful is, is, is a good general principle. But I do think it manifests itself differently in different ways. I think there's also differences where I would say in maths and grammar, you're actually looking at a limited number of concepts that you need to understand in enormous depth. Yes. A- and spending a lot of time on number bonds or what a sentence is, is enormously worthwhile. In the case of vocabulary, though, for example, vocabulary, you want pupils at the age of 17, 18 to have a vocabulary of tens of thousands of words. So you're not going to spend days on one vocabulary word. You're not going to do that. And in fact, pupils are capable of of, of picking up vocab words quicker, quicker than than that. that. So I I do think you have to look at what the content is that you're teaching. and, And I think you have to adapt things to suit that. And I think, as I say, that is a conclusion of the fact that there aren't these general domain specific skills And that's the thing I try to develop in my book where I talk about progression models that I talk about. If you want to reach expertise in a certain subject, you need a progression model. And those progression models are specific to the particular sort of bit of expertise. So I I, I do think you need to look at the thing you're teaching. Having said that, though, I, I, I still do think there are general principles you can apply across the board. And I think, again, that's what cognitive psychology, all of that gives us. It gives us these set of general principles like reviewing lesson plans in terms of what people are thinking about like how are you going to get something into long-term memory if if, if, if if nothing has' learned in memory nothing's been learned uh, nothing has changed in memory nothing has been learned and similarly I think there is an enormously powerful uh, set of yeah, set of research about, about the, the importance of examples so and in fact Isabel Beck who I mentioned earlier when she talked about teaching vocabulary she recommends teaching vocabulary through examples more than you teach it through definitions. So again, definitions is not maybe as helpful as you think they are, and actually teaching the vocabulary word through through examples can can, can be can be better.
0: That's that that's fascinating. That and you're right. There's there's definite parallels there, there with that Daisy because often, um, yeah, the, the, the kids don't understand the concepts that you're talking about. They can't visualise the the concepts <laughs> you're talking about, and it's only through those examples. <laughs> that it really comes to light and yeah you're absolutely right and when you say that it, it's so obvious that well for me anyway the, the examples are the key to that the examples have to be chosen so so carefully before you even start worrying about how you're going to explain them and convey them to the kids because it's the examples that the kids are going to see and engage with far more than some potentially abstract explanation no I, that's a that's a big one for me that daisy <laughs> that's <was> absolutely superb <laughs> Right fantastic Daisy. Well I want to move now on to talking about assessment. Um, now I've I've now read twice your fantastic book and I'm not just I'm not just saying that I know it sounds like a <laughs> like a, I'm trying to suck up to you here but I've read it twice and I've loved your making good progress uh, book. So my first question is why did you feel the need to write a book about assessment?
1: So I, I think it was what I was talking about earlier about the curriculum which is that I think there's a lot of really interesting ideas out there at the moment about curriculum reform. Lots of people doing fantastic stuff around lesson design, building up knowledge based curriculums. But the enormous difficulty is if you don't have a way of measuring it or if your assessment systems are making you do something else. All that, all those great ideas and good thinking about the curriculum will only get you so far. And so it was a a problem that I'd run into and I could see others were running into it. So uh, that was why I, that was what first got me into assessment, if you like. And then the motivation to write it was, again, a, a bit similar to Seven Myths, really, which is when you read a lot of research and you realize a lot of the research is kind of flatly contradicting a lot of what's accepted as best practice and what's recommended as good practice. So, again, you just feel, well, if there's all this research out there, people, you know, they, 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 they might, there might be an audience for it. <laughs> people might be interested in, in hearing more about this. And I think the other thing was that since national curriculum levels were abolished in, when was it, 2012, 2013, and it was left up to the profession to come up with the replacements, people have come up with a lot of replacements, people have had a lot of thinking to do around it, it's been an enormous headache for people. I suppose one of the things where I've been fortunate, I work in an academy chain, we've got that capacity at central office, there's been not just me, but other people here, the head of data I talked about, uh, people in the English Mastery team, people across our schools, we have a bit of extra capacity we're able to to think about these things to to put some work into them so it felt like in some ways maybe i had a responsibility to to share some of that as well
0: got it fantastic and i'll tell you what before we before we dig into um the kind of common practices that you see, you see in schools, and possibly mistakes that been made. I've got, I've got to got to ask you this question because this this has been absolutely plaguing my thoughts over the last kind of two or three months. This, so I, I'm a huge huge fan of formative assessment, and obviously <laughs> I've got diagnostic questions, and I I use, I use probably th- between three and five diagnostic questions with with every class every single day. But well, then no, no. I'm I'm reading David Didow's book and his his blog, and I'm seeing that he's saying that because we can't distinguish between learning and performance, as Bjork says, and I fully buy into that, I fully buy into that argument, then formative assessment as a whole, the idea of assessing where pupils are at in, in lesson and then re- responding accordingly is fundamentally flawed because we can't actually determine what students are learning at any given point in time in a lesson. Now, Daisy, help me out here because am I <laughs> going to have to abandon diagnostic questions and never use formative assessment again? Well, what's going on here?
1: No, I, I definitely don't think you should. Um, and I think you should keep plowing on ahead with diagnostic questions because it's brilliant. Um, uh, I think that, and I've, I've had this conversation, I think, with David, I've, I've blogged about it. I think that David, it, it, I've said to him before that just because assessment's complex, it doesn't mean it's mysterious. And just because something's difficult, it doesn't mean it's impossible. So I agree. Absolutely, with Björk and what David's saying about learning and performance being two different things, I agree that it is very, very difficult to infer whether learning is happening because everything we have for it is just a proxy. And until the day when we can stick um, what you know electrodes into heads and get a reading from a from a, from a brain scan, and we are we are nowhere near that stage now. Until, if and when we, you know, until we we ever get to that stage, we're stuck with making inferences and using proxies to make inferences. So I don't want to pretend that it's simple to see if learning is happening. And I think performance is not the same thing as learning. And to a large extent, you are always looking at some aspect of performance to infer whether learning has taken place. So where I would... Sort of disagree with david is i don't think i think that's hard but it's not impossible and, and and what i'd also say is is that we can probably never you're also trying to think a bit more probabilistically rather than deterministically it may well also it may well be possible to say with 100 percent accuracy that a people definitely know something but i feel like there's a sliding scale that that based on based on a, a number of different proxies We can say to a greater or lesser degree of confidence whether a pupil has understood something or not or whether learning has taken place. So if I just talk about what what I mean there, um, and and this is why so much comes down to assessment design and good design of assessment, because bad design of assessment means that the the, the proxy becomes a very bad proxy. And pupils are able to achieve a certain mark on an assessment without any guarantee at all of that underlying learning happening. So, I do think, for example, that you can perform without having learned. So I think that if we define learning as a change in long term memory, it is possible. And I think quite a few of us would have done it. to the night before an exam, stay up, memorise a lot of things, cram them into your short term memory, regurgitate them the next day in an exam. So re- almost regurgitate an essay based on your, your class notes and a week later have forgotten it all. Yes. So I think that is entirely possible that performance and learning are separate things. You can perform well and not have learned anything. I think, though, if you build in safeguards to your performances and you build in safeguards to your formative and your summative assessments, you reduce the risk of that happening. And in some ways, it's easier for the teacher to do this than it is for the examiner, because the teacher is seeing kids all the time. And if we're saying that one of the I would say and I talk about this in my book, one of the biggest threats to the validity of any assessment is the fact that if learning is a change in long term memory, how can any one off assessment tell you something? And I think that's an enormous threat to validity. I think that's an enormous problem for the examiner, but it's almost less of a problem for the teacher because the teacher does see the kid over time. So again, one of the things I talk about in my book, and I think one of the things that you are in an enormously uh, great position to be able to do, given the bank of data and research that you sit on is to be able to track a pupils, if they answer a bunch of questions over time. So if a pupil gets a question about fractions, right in September, Does that mean they've understood fractions? Probably not. If I ask them a very similar question three weeks later in the middle of their fractions unit, they get it right. Okay, a bit more evidence. Six weeks later, if I ask them it three months later, if I ask them it six months later. So if you, as the, the, you know, able to look into all that data from diagnostic questions, can track a pupil's answering of their questions across time. Actually, I think then you can start to say with a bit more of a degree of security whether that long-term learning has taken place yes so I don't want to pretend it's easy and I particularly think that David and, and, and Robert Bjork and the other people who write on this are absolutely right to point out the long-term aspect is the bit that causes you maybe most of the problems but I think there's ways around that and the thing I'm really interested in, and again, the thing you're in a great position to, have to do something about, is can you then start to build in algorithms where you would say, well, if a pupil gets this question right at this point and a similar question right three months later and another question right six months later, and maybe not just one question, maybe they're banks of 10, that actually if they do all that, they get a certain threshold right over a period of three to six months, can we then start to say, actually, they have learned it? Yes. And there is research out there where people have done this longitudinally with with vocabulary, foreign vocabulary words, and looked at if you learn it in a certain way over a year when you're 14, and then followed up later with people when they're 40. So that's your really long-term study, is to then start saying, well, what impact does doing things in a certain way over a three to six-month period have on long-term learning? So it's all that research out there about spaced practice interleaving all of that is I think when you combine all of that research with the power we have now to gather vast sets of data and look for patterns in them I think you could get to a point it probably would never be as I say deterministic would yes. always be probabilistic where you could say with a pretty high degree of confidence if you get this a set of 10 questions like this right at this point and a set of 10 questions like this right at this point and then again at this point I've got a pretty good idea that in 10 years' time, you'd still understand it. So we're not at that point yet, but, but I see no reason why, in theory, that's not possible.
0: Got it. And if
1: we if, if we
0: take it back to the classroom scenario, because this is this, this is another thing. This is a way of kind of exercising my demons here, Daisy. I'm getting it all <laughs> off my chest here. because um, I'm I'm a huge Dylan William fan, as I, as I'm sure you are. And one of the one of the first kind of training sessions I ever went on um, was was Dylan making the use of the of what he called hinge questions at the time, or diagnostic <laughs> questions, or whatever. And one of the things um, that he said, and I remember this so so clearly is that um, if you ask a multiple choice question and if all the kids get it right, then it's time to move on. There's your kind of evidence that they got it, that they've understood the concept, especially if it's a well-designed multiple choice question with good distractors. You can't get it right while still holding misconceptions and so on. If kids vote on a single question and they get it right, then it's time to move on. And I've, I've used that throughout my career. And what what I do at the start of every lesson is ask three diagnostic multiple choice questions to assess baseline knowledge before I start teaching new stuff on top of it and so on but I, I I get that we'll be at the stage where we can kind of see over time um building up evidence whether kids have understood concepts or not through through the results from this and I also kind of see as well that if you ask a ten question quiz you're going to get more evidence and so on but can you can you or would you infer something from it from a single question and I guess if if you can't i know we at the stage where single questions aren't worthwhile and we always have to ask kind of bundles of questions to be able to to get any useful information from it
1: so great questions really really thought-provoking i'd say if you ask the question and all the people get it right it's a well-designed question i would say in that lesson you can move on yes but you can't move on forever yes so you still get to So to go back to my Hermia and Helena example with Midsummer Night's Dream. So I said, you just have to make sure they really understand who's in love with who at the start of the play. In some of the lessons we've designed for English Mastery, you ask that question. You would expect all the pupils to get it right. It's still the starter at the beginning of the next lesson. And it still comes up in the middle of the next lesson. And it still comes up at the end of the next lesson. Yes. Now, obviously in between then you've, you've moved on. you you haven't just kept regurgitating that bit of the play, you are moving on to the next bit of the play, but you're still trying to reinforce that all the time. And I think, again, talking to maths colleagues, they say something similar, that you can do, say, simultaneous equations with pupils in a lesson. They get it. They get it down cold. You give them a bunch of different simultaneous equations. They get them right. Um, Do you then assume from that that they've they've got uh, simultaneous equations for always and ever? No. They could well turn up at the start of the next lesson and they forgot a lot of it. But does that mean they've learnt nothing? Well, I, don't, I, I suppose on the, on, the strict less, on the strict definition I gave of learning being a change in long term memory, then, then, then possibly no. But I, I still think you've got to build up from somewhere. So I, I still think having had that one lesson, they're better off uh, and having got those questions right. They're better off than if they hadn't had that one lesson and got them right
0: absolutely no i, I will again that 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 fits into bjork with um new theory of issues that like the kids have got to forget it right and then yeah. next time they're taught it that the storage strength of those memories is going to be deeper and so exactly
1: on. and and even the things that you do almost sort of completely forget so again interesting work on on um on um, vocab foreign vocab that even though that that foreign vocab that you learned when you were 16 and, and actually you did learn it properly and, 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 and you know you, you've you've learned it but then 10 15 years later you've, you've you've forgotten it well actually you think you've forgotten it but it takes you it's quicker for you to relearn it than someone who never learned it to begin with yes so it might take you only a month to relearn it all whereas somebody who never learned it, it was going to take them six months or a year or whatever. Yes. So uh, there's probably something similar at a micro level going on with a simultaneous equation or the Hermia and Helena that the pupil comes back to the next lesson. Doesn't get the question right. But once you start going through it again, they, 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 they remember it, it comes back to them and you're strengthening that memory and it's the retrieval effect. So to go back to your question, which was if they've got a question right and they've all got it right and it's well designed, can I move on? I would say yes in the lesson. So in that particular lesson, you can move on. But I would absolutely not assume, therefore, they've got it right forever and always. I'd probably come back with the same, or a twist on that question at the start of the very next lesson.
0: Perfect. No, this is fitting in with my way of thinking. So (laughs) my last question on this then, Daisy. Uh, again just just I'm obsessed the reason I'm obsessed with asking single questions is purely just on a practical level teachers often don't have time to ask more than one and um, question on each concept if they do assessing baseline knowledge or whatever it might be and I've, I haven't come up with a catchy way of saying this I need to work on this but l- let's see yeah. if this this comes out and makes any kind of sense I reckon if you ask a single question and everyone gets it right as as you've said there, maybe well, you well almost certainly you don't have enough evidence that they've learnt it, but maybe in that particular lesson you should move on. But if you ask a, if you ask a, a well designed diagnostic question, and students get it wrong and they choose an answer that's been well designed to reveal a specific misconception, that certainly tells you something, right? That that's going to tell you the, the specific nature of their misconception in a more efficient way than you could get from from any other means i i would argue so even if even if people aren't happy that there's no value in asking one question if everyone gets it right surely there's value in asking that one question if people get it wrong because you can infer, <laughs> yeah. infer something from yeah. their wrong answers
1: completely agree with all that so in some senses it's more useful when pupils get it wrong and fall into the yes. misconception than when they get it right and in some senses, the most useful thing, the most useful piece of information you can infer from them getting it right is that they haven't got it, fallen into misconception. Yes. Uh, at least at that moment in time. Got it. Per-
0: so, oh, sorry, so, sorry. so,
1: yeah, no, completely agree with that. Uh, and, and again, as long as with when they get it right, you still come back to it and you follow up. But completely agree that when they when pupils do opt for the misconception, that is incredibly revealing uh, and reveals. I think, yeah, genuine misunderstandings and genuine misconceptions that need to be addressed in other ways.
0: Perfect. And I'll tell you what, if you don't mind, I'm going to squeeze in one last question about these, the multiple choice, just because it's very rare I get to speak to somebody who's a fan of multiple choice questions uh, like you are, Daisy. Um, <laughs> right, yeah. uh, I often get whenever I give a talk or do a workshop on on the use of asking multiple choice or diagnostic questions, A thing that always comes back to me is Mm -hmm. are we not actually um, aiding the development of these misconceptions by presenting them um, to students? Are we not actually helping students form these misconceptions by showing them? in the questions themselves and I've done some reading and the only research I can find suggests that actually this is this is a definite danger and you can kind of help negate the effects by um, giving immediate feedback and class discussion and so on. But is is that a concern for you that if you do a a diagnostic question that is is actually really well designed picks up all the major misconceptions kids may have that actually just by seeing those misconceptions kids are more likely to, to fall into that trap.
1: So, so no, actually, I would say no, because I think an understanding of what misconceptions are and why is actually an important part of domain knowledge, an important part of what you're trying to get pupils to understand. So so I would say my understanding of, of, of grammar and indeed maths has been deepened by an understanding of misconceptions and an understanding of the kind of trap pupils fall into. And I think theirs is too. So I think it's important for pupils to understand not just how to calculate a percentage, but also that calculating a percentage is not the same as dividing. So, the you know, the, the classic error that people think, if I can calculate 10% of something by yes. dividing by... I can calculate 20% of something by dividing by 20.
0: And does that come... Uh, again, I agree with you. Yes. Does that come at... Would you expose kids to those misconceptions at early skill acquisition phase? Or does that come after you've, you've taught them the method, showing them no misconceptions whatsoever, they've got comfortable with it, and then you start
1: exposing them to misconceptions? Yeah, I, I, I suppose it, depend, it depends on the misconception. So there are some misconceptions which are, I think, developed, they can often be developed sort of later as people get older. So there was an interesting article Willingham wrote on his blog, I think a couple of years ago now, where he talked about a, a piece of research that has shown it was actually easier to teach certain e- concepts about evolution to, to five-year-olds than it was to teenagers, <laughs>
0: because,
1: because the five-year-olds didn't have the misconception. Right. So in that case, I'd agree with you, actually. It, arguably, introducing a misconception there, or if you did something clumsy and the misconception was introduced in such a way that it could lead people to think it was true or it would confuse them, that would be really bad. And you would be better off, I suppose, yeah, you are always better off if you're starting with young pupils to just they haven't got any misconceptions to begin with getting the right thing established, making sure they've got a hold of it. And then you can move on and then either never introduce a misconception or I suppose introduce it much older when you're trying to give them an even deeper understanding of the of the concepts and getting them to realize, you know, some of the things that are and aren't aren't correct about it. Um, however, it seems to me evolution is an interesting one because it's not something that five year olds are going to pick up things about, whereas it feels to me that with numbers and with grammar that they potentially are. Yes. And there's all kinds of misconceptions that they might just pick up in daily life.
0: Yes, flipping it's, it. It's flipping. So, compl- it's complicated. This Daisy and it's tricky. It, this teacher. It is. It
1: is complicated, but very interesting.
0: It is flipping yeah, it. Well, yeah. absolutely, absolutely fascinating. That. Um, I want to want to talk more about assessment here. Um, I'm particularly interested in this because assessment. Whilst whilst I think it's true that kids don't like assessment, and we we can dig into the potential to change that with low stakes tests and so on later on. But I don't think teachers particularly like assessments either. So i i'm particularly interested in what are some of the biggest mistakes if we want to call them that that you see schools making with regard to assessment and just when i was making a list of things that we do at our school I'm thinking, are QLA's useful? What about the kind of level descriptors that we, we touched upon before? And how often should we be doing these assessments? How often should we re- reporting them? And in what form should it be? And, and how do we stop teachers teaching to the assessment? So I just wonder if you just give us a, a brief summary of what you've seen in schools and what you think some of the big mistakes um, that schools are making are.
1: So for me, if I had to pick out one, it's it's criterion soup, as I like to call it. Oh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> so it's it's all it's all those level descriptors, which you know, varying levels of varying levels of vagueness and genericism. So the the kind of ones that say can ask and answer questions and, and expect you to rag rate a pupil on that. Um, but you know, even just going back to the old level descriptors. Uh, sort of same things like you know people have a, an emerging knowledge of history or a developing <laughs> knowledge of history. It's just those 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 adverbs or those adjectives or those phrases which are just so plastic and can be interpreted in so many different ways. And we know that even tiny tiny differences in how a question is formulated has an enormous impact on the ability of people to get it right. So I, I think um, I said before about the fractions example. Um, and there the, are the, the plenty of really interesting examples about how um, just changing, changing what the fractions are has an enormous impact on whether pupils can, can work out what's bigger and what's smaller. Um, but arguably, my, my, one of my favourite examples is um, uh, if you ask a group of eight-year-olds, I think, what's 11 plus 3, most of them get it right. If you ask them what's 3 plus 11, not nearly as many get it right.
0: Ah, that's think, interesting.
1: Yeah, and I think you can see what it is, because you can see them, 11 plus 3, they start with 11,
0: yes.
1: on their fingers and they go 12, 13, 14, and they stop. <laughs> if you ask them what's 3 plus 11, they're starting with 3, they don't have 11 fingers. Yes. <laughs> the working memory sort of overloaded, they've got to yep. So it's So it's just a more difficult question, not as many get it right, and... The other one I I sort of say again and again, which is bigger, three-sevenths or five-sevenths? Most 14-year-olds get that right. Which is bigger, five-sevenths or five-ninths? Only 15% of 14-year-olds get that right.
0: Flipping, heck you, you, yeah. you're right. And you'd think because what when you were mentioning their level descriptors, I'm, I'm sat there thinking, feeling quite smug, thinking, well, maths yeah. doesn't need to worry about that because we don't have the vagueness that that, that mm-hmm. English does, and so on. But you're absolutely right. We do like, and it will be, it will be a level descriptor. It will say. Able to add two fractions. And if you're lucky, it might say able to add two fractions with with two denominators the same. But even within something as specific as that, there's such a range of of questions. That's right.
1: And you you end up with the the great irony of all of this is, is that when you have very vague generic level descriptors, you can then define it to be impossible or trivially easy. So what everybody does, they think, well, the solution is I need to define the descriptor down. I need to make it tighter. I need to make it more precise. And the ridiculous thing you end up with then is you just then you, you end up stereotyping kids responses <laughs> uh, uh, or you end up. You just in the case of maths you define it down to one question. Yes. And of course, they get that one question, right, because they've, they've taught they've been taught it. Right? Yeah, of
0: course. Of course.
1: So, and and, and the, 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 it happens. It's even worse with writing. I mean, the, the reason why it's interesting to give examples from maths is because maths is probably, you know, maybe the least vague subject out there. And the subject which maybe we, we we think of as being the most objective. Yes. And if I'm saying this is a problem even with maths, what do you think it's like with creative writing? Yeah, <laughs> So what do you think it's like when you you know if, if we can still not agree on comparing comparing two fractions to agree which is larger? What's the likelihood we're going to agree with if we take this approach to descriptor like can write with flair and originality?
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: So. And then and then the, so the, the, then the move to tighten up the descriptor seems like it's the answer, but actually creates more problems. And we've actually gone down that route. And it's been fascinating to look at the way level descriptors have evolved in, 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 in English educational policy over the last 30 years, because it is a case study in, in a lot of dead ends. then yeah. <laughs> the way that people saw that the best fit application of level descriptors to writing, for example, was leading to big problems. And it was. And I remember doing this. You would get a pupil who you'd say, well, you know, they're a level two for technical accuracy, but they're a level six for imagination. So I'll give them a level four overall. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: That pupil getting a level four and you had another pupil getting a level four who was a level four for technical accuracy and a level four for imagination. And yeah. then you say, to what extent are both these pupils a level four? So the reaction to that was to say, well, let's define the descriptors more tightly. And more precisely. And that's how you ended up with the interim frameworks, which are currently being used at primary to assess writing. And they're secure fit methods of assessment. So it's this idea that you say, well, if you've got a fronted adverb, you need to have a fronted adverbial, you need to have a hyphen, you need to spell every word correctly. And if you do all of that, then it can reach this level. And that seems, you can see why that seems like a preferable, you know, better solution. The problem with that is it leads to very tick boxy writing and it leads to actually in many ways pupils writing more simplistically because what they realize if they take a risk if they try and spell any word that they're not sure how to spell they won't get the they'll, they'll lose on one of the tick boxes yes they end up with pupils writing very samey very stilted pieces of writing so all the incentives of that approach actually line up to produce very stereotypical responses.
0: Yes. So and, yeah. And again it's it would be the same in maths right you you're absolutely you you're absolutely right with with this daisy if I'm just just thinking about what you said about those level descriptors. The the more specific you get, the more predictable the questions become. Yeah, exactly. And the more predictable the assessments become, which completely kind of invalidates exactly. them, right?
1: And then you get a question, you get, a, you're absolutely right. In maths, it would manifest itself essentially as the rubric essentially becoming the test.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> that's you exactly.
1: The rubric in advance, the rubric would just consist of the questions that were on the test. And you have an interesting trade-off here between transparency and validity is that in most sectors in life we think that transparency is generally a good thing and we would say to ourselves well the, the more transparent the rules are around any complex process the better yes but the, the the weird thing you have with assessment is as i say the ultimate form of transparency would be just be to use the same assessment year on year but that's obviously a problem because then all the pupils would get it right but just because they'd, they'd, they'd memorize those answers and you then you're not generalizing to the the domain yes so you you would lose validity so by increasing transparency and arguably increasing consistency and the consistency of the the experience pupils get you would reduce validity Fletting. and so to some extent you have to have surprise
0: yeah of course you
1: have to have so and 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 then the difficult thing becomes because of what we just said around Not only does surface changes in questions have a big impact on the relative difficulty, but it is extraordinarily hard to predict those surface changes, what what impact in advance. So then you have the problem that it is basically impossible in advance to write two exam papers that are of equivalent difficulty. So once you get into these things, then you start getting into all the difficulties of standard setting and how you maintain standards across time and how you're consistent and how you're fair to pupils from different, different year groups. And and as you just
0: said, you know these are the not easy problems. No, they're not. And a, a few things are immediately springing to my idea, Daisy. Because I don't know if you've picked up on this, but in the maths world, it's all kicking off. About we've got the new GCSE being sat in a couple of months at the time of recording, and no one has a flipping clue about what the grade boundaries are going to be. Absolutely. So what, yeah. so what that what that means is when we're doing all our practice tests, we've got like yeah. each, each board has released three or four sample assessment materials. So all schools are sitting these. But there's absolutely no way of um, being able to being able to grade them, and there's pr- uh, pressure from senior leadership saying, "Look, we need to know what percent of kids are getting a level six and a level seven, and so on." But the exam boards aren't releasing any grade boundaries at all, and teachers can't understand why they can't give us some guidance. But is that is that related to to the the point it's, you're making it's, here? That it's, it's absolutely just in-
1: related to that yeah and and all the everything you're talking about there I'm, I'm, I'm living that world at the minute too don't worry. Um, <laughs> I'm living that world multiplied by 35 schools
0: nice uh, <laughs> so
1: you Totally get where you're coming from and it is enormously difficult and I think that Ofqual absolutely made the right call on this and I think that the point is that the maths exams have changed so much as you'll know yes. and there's so much different content in them uh, that you cannot say well uh, to take an example actually from primary maths I think one of the new bits of content they introduced with the new curriculum was you then had to calculate area of an irregular shape right uh, whereas in the past it was only area of a regular shape so if you've suddenly introduced a whole new set of content how can you say that how, how difficult that is in terms of what was on the old spec? Do you, see, do you see what I mean? Oh, absolutely. That you don't have. So, when, whenever you sufficiently change the content, it's really, really hard. Even harder, even when you even when you keep the content the same, and just tweak if you like the surfaces, it's hard. If you are then introducing vast new waves of content and new question structures and styles, it's practically impossible to to, to do it in advance. And, and yes, the way the exam examples do do it is to do it after the fact by looking at statistics. And again, I think Ofqual have taken completely the right approach. And I think my understanding is, you know, there's actually a term for it in the assessment literature, which is it's the ethical imperative. And the ethical imperative is that whenever you do have new introduction of new content and introduction of new exams, you have to ensure that the new group who are taking those exams the first time are not penalised for being that new group. Yes. And essentially Ofqual's interpretation of the ethical imperative was to maintain the percentages of 16 year olds getting certain grades so whilst we can't predict grade boundaries for next for this summer what we can do is we do know what percentage of pupils are going to pass or going to get the four grade and above and the A grade and above and 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 paradoxically by guaranteeing that of course guarantee of the pass rate means that they cannot, therefore, or or none of us can say anything really that meaningful about the raw grade boundary, the the pass mark. Of course. So by uh... by guaranteeing the pass rate, you therefore can't say anything meaningful in advance about the grade boundaries. Uh, But I would prefer that. And I actually think that was obviously we'd love to have the certainty of the grade boundary, Actually, the grade boundary is a bit of an illusory certainty because, as I've just said, it all depends on the relative difficulty of the question. Yes. So actually, I'd rather have the certainty of the pass rate being set. I think that actually gives you a greater degree of certainty. I know it doesn't feel like that, <laughs> but the <laughs> fact is nationally about 70 percent of pupils in this sum- this summer will get a four or above in, in their math GCSE and about 20 percent will get a seven or above.
0: Got it. No, that, that, that's cleared things up. No, that that does make sense, <laughs> that, Daisy. Whether it gives us any comfort, I don't know, but yeah, you, 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 I know. <laughs> you're right. I know. Uh, yeah. Can I ask as well, Daisy, because um, I don't know if this is the experience in art schools, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing it won't be, but in, in a lot of schools um, that I've worked in, and indeed our schools, um, it'll, it'll often fall upon one teacher, maybe they're in charge of, they've got responsibility for year nine or year eight or whatever, to pr- produce um, half-termly or termly assessments. And I've been in that position myself and what, what I've done is I'll look at the, have a quick look at the scheme of work, see what they've covered in the last few terms and I'll pop on to either Pro from AQA or the, the equivalent from Edexcel or OCR and I'll just build an assessment and my kind of criteria will be to make sure I've got a rough coverage of each of the, um, the topics that have been taught i'll have a bit of a feel for the difficulty and possibly like exam pro sometimes I'll grade questions so i'll make sure there's a good spread there and then i'll give the assessment to all all year nine kids will get this we'll collect the marks in and then we'll have some attempt to, to level or, or grade from there now i would imagine that's a fairly common practice um across schools i'm guessing it's fundamentally flawed and i'm wondering how we can improve it <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I, I think what it comes down to with all these questions about assessment is what's your purpose right what is it you are trying to achieve uh, and the thing i say in my book is that in many ways not always but in many ways summative and formative assessments they are pulling in different directions so the paper i quote on this is a really good one by william and black i think from 1996 which is called meanings and consequences and they identify that the major purpose of summative assessment is to generate a shared meaning And the major purpose of a formative assessment is to generate a consequence, an action step, something that you will do next, that the pupil will do or the teacher will do differently as a result. Right. That information. And generating a shared meaning is very different from generating a consequence. And so I would say what we try and do with a lot of our assessments in school is we try and get both bits of information from one test. Yes. And where that goes wrong, so in the example you just laid out, which I think is a very common one, Where that goes wrong is you want to generate a consequence and you want to have something formative and you want to therefore know how your pupils have done on whatever topic you did over the last term. So say they've done fractions. You say to yourself, well, look, I want some formative information. That's the most valuable thing. I'm going to give them a test on fractions and that will help me to learn how they've done on fractions. And then I can do a question level analysis maybe, and I can work out where their strengths and weaknesses are on fractions and I can reteach, et cetera, et cetera. And actually that I think is fine as far as it goes. The problem then becomes when you say, I now want to get a level from that or a grade from that. And the problem is that assessment was not designed with a grade in mind. And when you design assessments with getting a grade or a level or any kind of shared meaning in mind, and ultimately grades are shared meanings, ultimately what they are, that imposes an enormous amount of restrictions on your assessment. It means that you have to ensure that people take it in standard conditions It means that really you need more questions than just questions on fractions or just questions on what they've done that term. You need a bigger, a bigger sample of questions. So you need to be be much tighter on the conditions. You need to have a bigger sample of questions and you need questions that have a real range of difficulty, too. So you can't just be asking very difficult questions or very easy ones. You need one that's going to tease out the the whole ability, ability spectrum. So all of those restrictions are necessary to generate the shared meaning. But if you start then imposing all those restrictions, you won't end up with something that's giving you as good formative feedback. So that's what I mean about there being a trade-off. And I think the problem is we've, we have we believe we can have it all. We believe that we can do one assessment and get everything we need from that one assessment. And I don't think that is the case. I think that you need different assessments for different purposes. So to so go back to your example there at the beginning... I think it would all depend on what the purpose of that assessment was and the teacher would need to adapt that assessment depending on what their number one priority for it was. If what you are most interested in is getting a shared meaning, I would recommend not doing that yourself, particularly in maths, because there are so many other assessments out there that will do it for you more effectively.
0: Got it. Got so it. So, so this, this, oh, yeah. sorry, go on. No, go on.
1: Use, use your ingenuity and your, and your ideas about what's best for your class. Use that for the formative assessment. But don't use that for the summative because it would just compromise the summative information.
0: Got it. Got it. Well, I'm saying I've got it. I, th- I, th- I, th- <laughs> I think I've got it. It's, it's, it's a di- it's a difficult one, isn't it? A- again, because. You then get again, I don't know if this is a common practice, but we get this a lot where we have a lot of discussion over these these assessments. So what will happen is a teacher will write it and then kind of send it round to all to the year nine teachers for, for comment to say, do you think I've kind of pitched this right? Have I, have I got this too hard, too easy or and so on? But then, then that kind of lends itself to the <laughs> the obvious problem that. If, if this if this is going to be uh, resulting in levels and so on, and obviously teachers want their kids to do as, as best as possible, either consciously or unconsciously, th- there is the danger of kind of teaching to the test, right? That um, if, if you've seen the test before, that those kind of questions are, are, are in your head. So is it best if, well, well, is your advice if you want a shared meaning, literally individual teachers shouldn't be writing these tests and they should get them from elsewhere, and if that's the case it's i mean where would you advise getting them if if the, the fact that schools have just got so many different schemes of work and so on um you know individual schools have completely different schemes of work to, to the neighboring school and so on so what where where should teachers go to get these tests that are going to be more valid than teachers writing them themselves
1: so i think there's a there's a, there's, there's there's external commercial providers who you can go to and, you know, pay the money and you can do one of their tests and their tests will come with all of the data that they've built up over time or how they right. pre-tested it. And then you're not just – so then what you're, what I always say with those tests, what you're buying there is not – because uh, people often come back and say, oh, but they're quite boring or they don't fit exactly what we do in school or the yes. questions aren't as I- I- imaginative or creative. And what I always say is you, you could definitely create better questions or more interesting questions in that, I- that, that exam – you're not buying it or you're not using it for the questions. You're using it for the data set. Yes. The bit. So it's not about the originality of the questions or how fun they are or, you know, even how well adapted they are to your curriculum. It's about the fact that 10 15,000 other pupils nationally of the same age of your pupils have taken those exact same questions in the same conditions. And you can therefore compare how your pupils have done to, to that set. And again, that goes down to what I'm saying about purpose is that even if you're not following exactly the same curriculum, exactly the same order, and this is particularly true in maths, even if you're not following it in exactly the same order, st- it will still give you a pretty decent idea of yes. uh, uh, that shared meaning. And yes, it's not perfect, but it will give you something, you know, it will give you that approximation to it. And mostly in maths for most of these assessments at primary and key stage three, you're looking at number algebra geometry maybe some data handling yes now absolutely there are curriculums and indeed the kind of curriculums i like are those ones that focus on number a lot early on so you could say well if you're following a curriculum where you're doing a lot of focus on number and you're not doing much on shape space or data handling then definitely you're at a disadvantage if you're taking a national test that's got questions on geometry and data handling so i'm not saying that's not an issue it is an issue but I would just say still generally across the board, particularly by the age of year, the time you're in year seven and year eight, pupils probably will have done some geometry at some point. And so I think those kind of external tests you get do give you a pretty decent handle on how they're doing compared to, compared to their peers. I think the interesting question becomes then if you want to do something that is more aligned to your curriculum. Yes. I think then and one of the things we have an advantage of being a big network is that we can create our own assessments and, and effectively do a bit of standardisation within our network yes. because we've got so many pupils.
0: Got it, got we've it. we've got
1: 1,000 pupils, I think, in a, in a year group. So if we get people, you know, we can design assessments, get people to submit their raw marks and tell them how their pupils did compared to, to, to all their pupils in the network. So obviously individual schools don't have the chance to do that. We can do that because we're bigger. But even with us, we would still use external tests because even our uh, even our our network is not nationally representative. So we need to be doing those external tests still to give us that handle on it. So I would say the external tests, be they I I say external commercial tests. Once there's banks have passed papers out there and you, you have some idea of what the grade boundaries were for the cohort who sat them. You can start to use those. Yes. So my point would be, if your absolute number one priority is the shared meaning, then do something external. Do something that's either an example, past paper, or it's an external, you know, it's one of these companies who, who offer them. Do something like that if your number one priority is a shared meaning. If you are more interested in what you need to do next for your pupils, then definitely design something yourself. Then arguably there is something that kind of sits in the middle where you're saying, well, I want it to still be give me a bit of a shared meaning where it's covering a lot of it's covering a big sample of the curriculum. And it's something where I could compare with other pupils. But I also want it to be a bit more like my curriculum and to follow the structure of my curriculum. Yes. I think that is possible if you've got enough schools who are willing to join in with you. Yes. So there is it is possible to get that thing that sits in the middle. I think it's really hard for a school on their own to do that
0: got it no that's that's fantastic no, that's, that's very sound advice that daisy and me, me last question about assessment if, if that's alright is that I've, I've got a bit of a bugbear with, with the use of past papers um, in general to, I think schools make use of them too soon in, in year 11 and I've, I've gone off on that one in the past so I, I won't go down that down that dark road but what, what I want to go with you here is is the use of QLAs because again I, I don't I don't think this is just our school I think this is this pr- pretty common practice that what happens is you give you give kids a, a past paper or in fact any assessment um, or whatever and um, you, you mark it and then you fill in a, a QLA a question level analysis you get a nice pretty greens and reds floating up and and it tells you that question four was a disaster question eleven was a disaster so for the next week you spend your time going over question four so say it was on adding fractions or so on and question 11 now uh, which for example is on simultaneous equations now I, i've got a problem with that for, for two reasons one that it's say question 4 was on adding fractions it could just have been the wording of the question or it could have been a very specific type of adding fractions. so do you have enough knowledge from that um, to say that kids don't understand it but my bigger issue is and I don't know if this is this crosses over to something you've come across in English but say for example it's a question 13 or whatever is a, a simultaneous equations question and you see that your kids have got 2 out of 5 on it that doesn't tell me anything about their understanding of simultaneous equations because they could have picked up those two marks for two very different reasons and so on so I've, I've almost got to go back to square one with the teaching of simultaneous equations to figure out what's going on so I'm not a huge fan of qlas in general but obviously they're widely used so what what what's your take on them daisy
1: yeah so i talk about qlas in my book i've got a section where i talk about them i think they i think they have their i think it's the same as past papers you were saying about past papers which is that i think used towards the end of a course and used once pupils have sort of learned all the content they can be very effective in getting them to see oh wow i'd learned that or I thought I'd learned that but I'm clearly not as secure on that as I thought
0: yes
1: I think the problems I have as you identify is when they're used too soon particularly if GCSE ones are being introduced in sort of year nine and you're doing a QLA of GCSE GCSE papers in year nine and I think the 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 two problems you identify are are particularly important so I think I think one is to then say I, I don't like the idea that they take over the curriculum no. that you then say, right, so I'll now spend the next half term working on these three questions. Yes. Which are difficult. I think if you want a sort of way of if you want to keep the QLA but get around that problem, the, 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 the issue, I, the, what you want to try and do is, and this goes back to the, what I said before about not just looking at the raw mark and the raw mark being deceptive because questions have different difficulty levels. If you have to do QLA, do QLA supplement it with norm group information on that question. So, for example, what you don't want to do is do a QLA where you ask your pupils which is bigger, a five over seven or five over nine, and fifty, uh, and say twenty percent of your kids get it right, and you say, oh my goodness, that's awful. I Each fractions. <laughs> if you had the norm group data, you would know the norm group data for that is fifteen percent. So, arguably, your pupils actually have done pretty well on that, and maybe fractions is a strength. Yes. I think one issue is you should, if you're going to use them, supplement it with norm group data, and that will get you to realise that actually some things that look like weaknesses are strengths and vice versa. The other thing I would completely agree with is what you said is if a pupil gets two out of five on simultaneous equations, that doesn't help you. I think that's also very, very true with the more complex questions in maths and English, is that you don't know why a pupil got it wrong. Yes. And too often, and again, it's particularly an issue with GCSE, too often is the reason the pupil's got it wrong that they don't understand simultaneous equations, or they were absent on the day you were doing simultaneous equations, or is the problem actually, it's way back with number bonds. Yes. That it's something sitting far underneath that. And so that's my big issue with introducing them too soon. Is that if you introduce them too soon, you really start to get some some some, some problematic inferences. And I, I think I often say that about the, when they're used in English and for reading as well, because you get people saying, right, well, the, they didn't do well all the questions to do with inference, so the problem is inference. So we need to work on inference skills. And then you say, well, what if actually the problem was that the vocabulary in this paper that people yes. were, you know, didn't know? And actually the problem is a vocab problem, the problem is not an inferencing problem. So I, I think I am a fan of data and I love getting data. <laughs> I never want to say I never want to say don't collect it. I think you can I think unlike say descriptors, I think there are still interesting things you can do with QLAs. But I do think I agree with you that they are misused in lots of ways and you've got to be very careful with how you use that data. Got it.
0: Okay, Daisy, I want to turn to uh, research to end this interview, because as listeners will know, I've become a little bit obsessed with with educational research over the over the last kind of couple of episodes and a few months. And I know you're obviously massively, massively into research. So uh, what I wanted to ask you was, what's the most important piece of research that you've ever read?
1: The most important piece of research I've ever read, I think I would have to go with Uh, The paper by Kirshner, Sweller and Clark, which is called Why Minimal Guidance During Instruction Does Not Work. An analysis of the failure of constructivist discovery, problem based, experiential and inquiry based teaching.
0: (laughs) Nice. I like it. Catchy
1: title. I like it. (laughs) Yeah, very catchy. So I think that's a really important piece of research. It's not really so much an original piece of research. It's more a sort of summary of everything that's out there on Minimally guided instruction and why it doesn't work.
0: (laughs) So, uh, yeah, how how come you you chose that one?
1: I think because it's it does address so many of the big issues about the big debates in education, and in particular, all of these ideas that you can have pupils sort of learning, doing discovery learning in class, and discovering everything they need to in life through sort of yeah, well, well designed, well designed discovery. Or, or, or well-designed problems and I think particularly the way it emphasizes that and this is something I really stressed in, in both my books really that the practice of a profession is not the same as learning to practice a profession and for me I, I've started to call this the, the means end fallacy so I just see this everywhere this idea that if we want people to become great problem solvers get them to solve problems If we want people to think like scientists get them in lessons to think like scientists. If we want them to think like historians, get them to do what real historians do. If we want them to be an expert, get them to look at what experts do, copy what experts do. So we see this everywhere and it's such a plausible, logical leap to make, but it's wrong. And the Kirschner sweller Clark paper just explains it really, really clearly. And I don't just think it's important for education. I actually think it's got applications for you in in a lot of areas of, of life. And funny enough, when you look at a lot of business research around goal setting and target setting, uh, you look at sports and what sportsmen do. It's all, all the same. You shouldn't be setting these big generic targets, or, or, or you know, based around what the end goal is. That, that part of the the skill of learning something actually is to to break down that big end goal and target into smaller chunks and practice those. Exactly. So I think the Kirshner Sweller. Clark paper just explains that very pithily and very elegantly and and links to all the sorts of relevant research about it and it's written by some of the leaders in the field in particular uh, the, the person who's done an awful lot of work on that tension between the the, the means and, and and the end is is John Sweller who's a co-author on the paper and John Sweller's John academic research on goal free problems and worked examples is is really really profound
0: oh I- and absolutely <laughs> absolutely i mean i interviewed greg ashman a couple of episodes ago and yeah. he's massive into cognitive load theory and it's just yeah. it absolutely changed absolutely changed my life uh, that is yeah. no, no exaggeration yeah. to say can i ask you a quick question on that on that one daisy because you, and i'm obsessed with with deliberate practice as well and i read peak and i've read a lot of um anderson's research on that and this is one of my reasons i'm, I'm moving away from past papers because yeah. to take your sports analogy there and i, I think i read this um I think it was in your Seven Myths book. Um, the fact mm. that um when when footballers are training the uh, at a young age, they don't do it in a big match, eleven aside, full pitch situation. They do little tiny drills and especially kind of on the continent or, or Brazil or Spain and so on. Little focused drill practice. And the big game's the kind of thing that comes at the end. And that's the um that because because in the big game you're so you're so out of control, there's too many variables going on, you can't hone in and, and focus on those individual piece of practice that you want to improve upon and again i don't know if I'm, I'm taking the analogy too far but for me that's the problem with past papers you're giving past papers to kids at the start of year 11 before you finish the course that's the big game situation the past paper you don't you want to be saving that till the very 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 last minute and you want to be hammering all the individual skills focusing on where they go wrong and striving to improve so i think hitting year 11s with past like 20 past papers from september onwards sounds a great idea but I think if you follow the principles of deliberate practice, I don't think it is. But what's your take on that, Daisy?
1: Yeah, I completely agree with that, and yeah, absolutely love the analogy, um, and yeah, I do use it in, in both of my books actually, and it's one that I think is so powerful. And yeah, I think the past papers are the equivalent of the the, the big match, and I think also not just the past papers are equivalent of the big match, but it's the same in you, you look in any 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 field you look at, you look at musicians. They don't practice by playing the same piece over and over and over again. Um, so when you look at you look at look at any any you know any any, any 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 sector you care to look at, and it's the same the same with kids. And I think you're absolutely right to say if you're just starting from year eleven at the start of year eleven doing past papers, you're not getting the chance to really hone the specifics and the the, the, the focus in on the on the real things that are, the, 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 that are holding them back. So. Yeah, could just completely agree with what you said, basically.
0: <laughs> oh, good! It's, it's a rarity on this podcast that people do agree, so that, that's perfect. Um, let Let me ask you then, Daisy. Um, what What would you say? Anna, it's a pretty tricky question to answer, but what's the most surprising piece of research you, you've ever come across?
1: So, most surprising, I would say. Well, I'm not sure if it's the most surprising, but maybe the most fascinating or, or full of surprises is the the famous paper on about uh, by Dunning and Kruger which has given rise to the term the Dunning-Kruger effect.
0: All right, yeah, go on, tell me more well, about this.
1: Well, it's it's the paper that says that if you you, you... you have to know something about something in order to be able to judge your own competence of it. So people who are not... If, if, if you don't have competence in an area, you're not a very good judge of your own competence. So so the, the, that stated like that, it sounds obvious, but the paradox of it is, is that the more... Um, the more you know about an area, and the, and the kind of the more expert you are in it, paradoxically, the harsher a critic you'll be of your own ability within it. The less you know about an area, the more you'll have like an illusion of your own competence.
0: Oh, right.
1: So they do almost maybe quite a sort of slightly cruel sort of trick in it, where they get a bunch of people who uh, they, they 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 work out through their appreciation of humor, if you like, that they aren't very funny, <laughs> and they get get people to. To, to rate how humorous they are, uh, they are. And they find that people who aren't that funny rate themselves as being funnier. <laughs> right. Because they don't actually have a pretty a good example of kind of what, what, what humor is and what other people find funny. So, and they do it also for, I think, grammatical constructions as well. So it's got enormous implications for teaching and learning because it's got enormous implications actually for peer assessment. And for to what extent we let pupils do peer assessment. But also it's got enormous implications. And we were talking earlier about making inferences and how you infer from 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 pupils judgments. And actually pupils are not necessarily the best guide to their own their own competence, their own ability in something, both in terms of being over and underconfident. But it's another one that's also got enormous applications for life because you can see it in, in, in all kinds of walks of life um, in terms of how good a driver you think you are <laughs> in, in a whole area of life of, of, of just that, that balance of the overconfidence and the underconfidence not quite playing out how you might expect. Uh, and it's of a piece I think with all of the research that, that I love is all that research on, if you like, the, 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 the sort of the cognitive illusions and the, the, the biases that we're all prey to. And whenever you dig into assessment, assessment is all about human judgment and human judgment is just so in some ways it's brilliant but the number of flaws and the number of errors that we're prone yes. to make is just enormous and dunning kruger is almost just a summary of some of those oh, and it is it, it is very entertaining as well
0: that's a great job fantastic that's a brilliant choice and i'll link to both of those um, in the show notes um and the the last thing i want to ask you daisy i've been doing a bit of kind of I want to say research, but it's a bit more like stalking in in preparation for this interview. Just, <laughs> i just kind of reading up on your latest blog post, and I also saw the interview um, you did with Tez um, about comparative judgment. Now, I'm going to be entirely honest with you. Hands up here. I haven't heard of it at all. Um, I didn't know what was going on. And when I'm when I'm watching, and I'm going to ask you to just explain briefly what it's about. But as I'm as I'm watching and listening and reading, uh, you talk about this. I'm thinking to myself, firstly, this is amazing. But secondly, I'm not convinced it's going to work in mathematics. So I wonder if you right. could kind of that, yeah. actually kind of lead into it. So if you tell us what it is and then can it work in the world of maths?
1: Yeah. So comparative judgment is a way of assessing open tasks, uh, complex, holistic tasks that allows you to get away from a rubric and it allows you to get very reliable results. So the way it works is it's another it's another sort of piece of psychological research that sits underneath it. Traditionally, when you mark an essay, for example, you mark an essay against a rubric. You have all the problems with the rubric I spoke about earlier. You then go to a moderation session. You have a big row of all the other moderators. It <laughs> 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 will fall out and nobody, nobody's happy. Nobody <laughs> um, How comparative judgment works is instead of marking one essay against a rubric at a time and then moving to the next one, and the next one, and the next one. Comparative judgment rests on the fact that actually humans are very bad at absolute judgments and humans are instead very good at comparative judgment. So we're very bad at taking one essay and saying absolutely what marks should this get? But we're much better at looking at two essays and saying, well, which one's better? But what you can do is if you do a series of judgments of comparative judgments like that, then there's an algorithm which was developed by a psychologist back in the 1920s, uh, Louis Thurstone, which allows you to crunch all of those different decisions together and it allows you to come up with um to come up with therefore a score that's associated with with each of the essays so what uh, dr chris whedon at no more marking has built is an online comparative judgment engine so what it allows you to do is it allows you to scan in essays set up judgments the way i the way i just talked about that you'll have pairs of them appearing on your screen and you pick which one you think is better and the online comparative judgment engine will crunch all of those decisions and it will then come up with a score for for all of the essays so the fascinating thing about this process is that it's much quicker than traditional marking and it's also much more reliable than traditional marking so traditional marking of the top I've outlined is very, very hard to do reliably and consistently. It's very, very hard not just to get two markers to agree with each other. It's hard to get one marker to agree with themselves when they start <laughs> marking with themselves at the, at the end of the marking. So the incredible thing about comparative judgment, and I've done so many sessions now and every time almost, I can't quite believe it's true. But you get really high levels of reliability, sort of 0.8, 0.9 uh, levels of reliability. And when you then dig into the results after you've finished all your judging... You've got all your essays with the, with the marks associated with them and you, you go in and you look at the one that was judged to be the best. And by and large, generally, you'll open it in front of a group of teachers and they'll say, yeah, that does feel like the best one. Um, and so on, you know, you'll go down the list and, and, and it feels right. Uh, and so the incredible thing about it, as I say, most, not most, but maybe lo- lots of moderation sessions can really turn into quite heated arguments. Yes. They can be quite sort of small p- political, uh, a real disagreements there. Uh, nobody's quite sure if they've got it right or not. And they take a lot of time. And the incredible thing about comparative judgment is... (laughs) everybody sort of sits there in silence for half an hour judging and at the end of it everybody agrees
0: (laughs) Um, well you you've you've (laughs) absolutely sold me on this and i I was explaining this to to my friend who's a music teacher and he could he said he could when he marks a piece of music coursework it's a flipping nightmare to try and agree on what grade or level you're supposed to give to a a piece of music but i said to him if i if i played you two pieces of music could you tell me which one was best he went yeah easy no problem at all so again i can i can see it working for that but how, how are we using this in mathematics daisy
1: so two ways you can use it in maths uh, one way is you can use it in a slightly different way to the way i've just talked about which is that do you remember i was said earlier in the podcast that it's really hard even with maths to tell how hard a question is up front yes before any people are taking it well one of the ways you can and people have used it in maths is to put a bunch of questions into a comparative judgment engine and ask a group in this case it was a group of math PhDs which question is the more mathematically difficult to Ah, ask? nice I see and that as I say it, it, it feels silly because you think to yourself well hang on a minute shouldn't we be able to tell that absolutely anyway but as I've said people find it very hard when you do a comparative judgment process for this you get a much much better uh, understanding of which questions are difficult and which questions are easy and Ofqual actually use this in a major piece of research to help develop the new GCSEs
0: really? so that's yeah, that's fascinating
1: they, they put a bunch of two and I think about two and a half thousand maths questions taken from English GCSE papers but also I think from New Zealand um, I think they were definitely from 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 other parts of the world they put them all into a comparative judgment engine and they got I think 35 40 maths PhD students to say which is the more mathematically difficult and if you go onto Ofqual's website you can therefore see them all ordered by 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 level of difficulty so in that sense, it offers a solution to a perennial problem, as I said, of, 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 of exam setting, which is how do you ensure consistency from one year to the next? That this offers a solution solution to what, as I say, is a, is a really difficult problem. So That's one way. The other way you can use it, which as also uh, no more marking have used with 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 some schools in England, is it allows you to set more, more open maths tasks than traditional. Than a, than a set traditionally so 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 typically your, your, your maths questions tend to be quite quite closed questions that uh, can be marked even by somebody maybe with, without an understanding of the mathematics if, if it is just right wrong and they've got the answer key and in fact you know push it to the extreme you can obviously do it like like diagnostic questions you can have them marked by a machine and as you know i'm a big fan of multiple choice questions um, i don't have a problem with closed questions But you can also see how even in maths, you might at times want to ask questions that are not closed. But the enormous problem you have then is the same problem you have traditionally with essays, which is what if it becomes very hard to mark those.
0: And Daisy, you, you straight away you're right here because again, just just for the the listeners' benefit here, if you've never tried, if you've never sat in a maths department meeting arguing over where the marks go in a three mark question or a five mark question, you've never lived. Like we we just we just bang a bang a question. You'd think maths would be easy, right? We yeah. bang a we bang a question on the board. We yeah. hand out the mark scheme and we say to our department, right, or mark it, and you can guarantee there's going to be at least four or five different marks given out, and it's only like a four mark question or a 5 mark question but then anytime we've then tried to do like an end-of-term project and try to assess that in any way it is you might as well just get a random number generator press yeah. go and just assign it it's a flipping nightmare so <laughs> so can this work for for open open-ended yeah. maths tasks
1: yeah it can so i think it could work with the projects that you if you've got an end-of-term project you could do it with the the ways that dr chris whedon and uh, ian jones who's a maths advisor no more marking the, the questions they've developed are these really lovely sort of open maths questions where you can respond to them using words using diagrams using images and their aim is to as I say be very different to traditional math questions but to try and probe some of that some of that um understanding of maths my favorite one of the recent lot that I've looked at that, that, that Ian's developed is what rules do you know in maths that are always true Ooh, and I, I i saw a set of pupils who had responded to that and some of them had just written out sort of the equivalent of two plus two equals four yeah or five, five equals ten so you think okay well that's one response the best response i saw was a pupil who wrote n plus zero equals n nice n multiplied by zero equals zero nice And I thought, wow, actually, that really does demonstrate something that I think would be quite hard to get through a closed question. Yes. So I I really like that. I think that the way I see these questions, where I think they have enormous potential, is I think the way that the world has gone in the past few years, as we've been talking about with coaching towards past papers, is that sadly it's possible to get marks in SATs and in GCSEs through really heavy coaching
0: yeah
1: so to 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 take the old grading system you know there were pupils who got a c on the old maths gcc paper who maybe had got that by being very heavily coached for it and maybe didn't have that great an understanding of maths there might be other pupils who hadn't been coached for it who had maybe not had great teaching or, or much teaching and had also got a c yes it feels to me that the kinds of questions you have for maths for comparative judgment you could start to tease out the differences between those pupils and you could start to see which pupils have really got an understanding of maths that puts them on a slightly different level to to pupils who have got a similar grade but reached it in a very different way.
0: So, now that is that is big potential. So do you do you kind of yeah. see the future of maths exams being similar to so maybe you'd have one paper that would be similar to our GCSE as it currently is but another paper that maybe had two or three of these open-ended questions students choose one of them answer it however they want and then it gets kind of put into the comparative judgment judgment machine that kind of ranks them and can assign grades that way is that is that the future
1: I, i think that potentially that definitely is an option and i think comparative judgment is really new and the exciting thing is I think that it's almost in some ways it's about what people are going to make of it and how people are going to use it and and of course there's potential for examples to use it but almost the way I'm most excited about it is the way that teachers can pick it up and use it uh, and use it as a tool that helps them in what they want to do so I'm really interested I mean I, th- I think that the, the area I've worked on most is, is where I think the sort of biggest problem is that comparative judgment can solve which is the assessment of writing in primary so I think that's the sort of an immediate, obvious place where comparative judgment is just such a brilliant idea and solves for a problem that everybody is suffering with. But I think absolutely there are other areas where it, it can and will work. And I'm really interested uh, in going to, to, to work at normal marking and trying to develop what, what, what those things might look like. So I'd love to talk to you more about it.
0: (laughs) Flipping heck. Well, no, we'll book book you in in a year's time, Daisy. For that, That is absolutely amazing. That sounds brilliant. Uh, Well, I have kept you far too long here. So to wrap up, I just wondered if we could just do uh, the big three. So what three websites, blog posts, or however you want to do it, would you like to direct our listeners to? And I will place links to these in the show notes. So, Daisy, what are you going for for your big three?
1: So um, I'm going to go, number one, I'm going to go with Dan Willingham's blog. So Dan Willingham, not maybe the most prolific blogger out there, but all his blogs are really carefully thought through. They're often talking about a really interesting new piece of research. And I just think he's just the most enlightening writer uh, about learning. Um, so, so definitely put, put Dan Willingham's blog up there. Um, next up, I'm going to go for Greg Ashman's blog. And I think you've had Greg Ashman on here before, haven't you?
0: Yes. Yeah. He put me so, through the grill. I'd say, yeah, I had to revise yeah. for this one, Daisy, and I had to revise yeah. for Greg's as well. <laughs> no, yeah, excellent blog.
1: Yeah, and Greg's really prolific, and he has got so many pieces up there that I often just send around to people as an explanation of a particular issue. So it's a really, really great resource um, that I've, I, I use to sort of, you know, quite a lot for myself just to give myself an insight into things and to, to, to send to others too. So that would be a good one. And the other one is a bit more of a, of a sort of a website, or just a one-off post, but it goes back to what I was saying before about the comparative judgment and maths. And I thought your listeners, in particular, will be interested in it. So it's the off research into the, the, the use of comparative judgment to identify the difficulty of different maths questions. And most of the maths teachers I've shown it to have been really fascinated by it because you've got these two, two to three thousand maths questions sort of ordered in, in, in order of difficulty. And it's just really fascinating even for a non-math teacher to just click through and look at what's down here at the bottom, what are the simple ones, what's more difficult. Oh, I wonder why that is. You know, what 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 impact would that have? So that's that would be my third one.
0: They are absolutely wonderful choices. And as I say, there'll be links to those um, on the on the show notes. Um, Daisy, we have come to the end of the interview and I just I want to thank you for a couple of things. And um, firstly, for, obviously, uh, for giving up your time speaking to me. I know you're incredibly busy. So so thank you for that. But also, um, Thank, well, thank you for your, your kind of honesty and your just enlightened discussion that we've had through this. I found the apps so, so, so useful and, and I know listeners will too. And also just thank you for the books you've written. I, and I, honestly, it's going to sound pathetic when I say nice things at the, at the end of these shows. But the um, like abs- the assessment book, I've, I've never read a book like it um because there, <laughs> there aren't many books out on assessment and assessment is one of my favourite things in the world. So I found that absolutely fascinating. But you see, your seven myths book, I would make it compulsory for every teacher, no matter what age, experience, or whatever, to read it. Because that, along with Dan Willingham's um, "Why pupils Don't Like Schools" or "Why Students Students Don't Like School," changed the way I teach. After twelve years, it has literally changed the way I teach. It has got me reading research, it's got me writing about different things, it's got me talking about different things. It has literally changed my profession. So, just for that alone, Daisy, thank you so much. And as I say, thanks so much for your time for speaking to us tonight.
1: That's really kind. Thanks very much, Craig. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on.
0: So there you have it. There was my interview with Daisy Christadulu. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. The conversation has just been buzzing around in my head in the hours following the interview and in this takeaway I just wanted to reflect upon two things that really struck me and have really given me food for thought. The first is is the emphasis on examples, and how planning examples is possibly more important than planning explanations. And I spoke about the kind of evolution that my planning process has gone through. Started off planning resources, moved on to planning questions, then it was planning explanations when I, I started to get obsessed with explicit instruction, and now it's moving towards planning examples. And I I mentioned briefly a a piece of research that I'd um, come across when I was discussing with Daisy. And I just wanted to talk about that a little bit more. Um, The research paper is called Getting Students to Create Boundary Examples. And it's by the maths gurus themselves, Anne Watson and John Mason. And there'll be a link to this paper um, on the show notes. And they make the point that, say say for example, and they reference this in the paper, say, say you're teaching sequences and maybe to a year seven or a year eight class. And the only examples you show students are ascending linear sequences and descending linear sequences. And by the end of that lesson, the kids are probably brilliant at finding the nth term of ascending and nth term of linear sequences. And you leave that lesson and they leave that lesson feeling pretty good about themselves. But when you come to think about it, if they're the only two examples the kids have seen, they may leave that lesson thinking that the only thing that distinguishes one sequence from another is whether it goes up or it goes down. Because all of them that you've shown the kids go up by the uh, go up by constant amounts, they're all linear sequences, or go down by constant amounts. So therefore, when students then come across non-linear sequences, and of course, those of you teaching in the UK are ge- geometric sequences and Fibonacci sequences, they're part of the GCSE now, or even when they get to A-level and they start to come to sequences that have limited values and sum to infinities and all this, they're going to get muddled up. And if we put this into the context of kind of schema design, when when kids are form, forming their schema about sequences, if they're only exposed to limited amounts of sequences, then that schema becomes incomplete. And then you've got problems when you come to introduce other, other versions of sequences to them. And look, it's not just limited to sequences. I think linear equations is a really good one to, to really grasp this. And and Danny Quinn, when I interviewed her in part one of the, that interview, touched upon this as well, that if the examples you give to kids in linear equations are limited to 2x plus 1 equals 5, 6x minus 2 equals 14, and so on, those classic two-step equations, then... If they're the only examples kids see, all right, they get them in class, but it doesn't take much to mess them up. 4 minus 2x equals 10, and all of a sudden, they're completely screwed. And there's loads of other ones. I was thinking about this. Say you're doing angles in polygons, and kids are only used to seeing concave polygons. Then all of a sudden, so they master that, they're experts at that. Then you give them a polygon with a convex angle in it, and all of a sudden, flipping out, well, what's going on here? They can't do it. Or when you're teaching straight line graphs, And every single equation they've seen is y equals this, y equals this, y equals this. Well, what happens when they see x equals, x equals five? That doesn't seem to fit into their rules. So this whole notion of when you're teaching a topic, thinking about the different examples, planning for the different examples, because as Daisy um, really articulated well, I thought, that you can explain things really, really clearly, crystal clearly, but the kids might not understand it. But if you show them examples, examples of things that work, example of things that don't work, and the the, the terminology that Watson and Mason use, boundary examples, those examples that are on the boundary between what does work and what doesn't work, what is an example and what isn't an example. I think that's the way forward, the real power of planning and delivering examples. So that was the first one. And the second one was this this thorny issue of, of distractors. And I get this loads when I'm doing talks about diagnostic questions. The fact that if you design... And it's ironic, really, because if you design a really good question, then one of the key features of a good question is it has good distractors. They're not just random uh, wrong answers in there. The distractors reveal specific misconceptions. But is it the case that by showing kids these misconceptions, exposing them to these misconceptions... It actually helps them create these misconceptions for themselves in their own mind. So you're actually inhibiting learning. Well, Daisy's point was a key one, I thought. She argued that you cannot truly understand a concept unless you know the misconceptions. But what does the research say? Well, I've dug out two papers here. And once again, these are linked to um, in the show notes and on my research page. The first is the memorial consequences of multiple choice testing. And this is by all the big names in assessment. Marsh is in there. uh, The two Bjorks are in there. uh, Henry uh, Rodeiger is in there. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, But they they make the point, and I'm going to quote this. Multiple-choice laws, in other words, distractors, may become integrated into subjects' more general knowledge and lead to erroneous reasoning about concepts. So their study suggests that showing these distractors can lead to uh, erroneous reasoning from students. So does that mean we get rid of them? Well... (laughs) No, and obviously I'm biased in saying that because I've I've kind of built uh, the world's biggest collection of, of these multiple choice questions. But I genuinely believe um, that they do more good than harm. Now we have to be aware of that potential danger and I've got a, f- a few thoughts on that. Um, the first is that the benefits of these multiple choice questions far outweigh any costs. The benefits come from the testing effect and the retrieval effect and also crucially from... Um, actually learning about the specific nature of misconceptions that kids have. Um, I often believe that kids could either do something or they couldn't do something. Kids could do linear equations or they couldn't do linear equations. But that's a load of rubbish. Kids can either do something or they can't do it for very specific reasons. And it's the reasons that they can't do it are identified by well-designed multiple choice questions. So I really think the benefits outweigh the costs. But if we want to get over this this fact that these misconceptions um, may actually linger in kids' heads once we've exposed them, I think there are the two things to bear in mind here. Firstly, immediate feedback can help. So we sh- when we show kids these questions in class, we get them to vote on them, we discuss them, we immediately quash any wrong answers, but not just quash them, talk about them, discuss them. Why are they wrong? How do we know they're wrong? And so on. So I think that's important, dealing with them immediately in class when these these misconceptions become apparent. And secondly, the more I think about it, the more there is possibly an argument for not introducing these type of questions in early skill acquisition. So the first time you teach kids how to add fractions, don't um, address the misconceptions that kids have straight away. Just teach them the right way to do it, the right way, the right way, the right way. And then when you're revisiting it, possibly the next lesson possibly a week maybe even a year later whenever it comes up again that's when you can ask the diagnostic question with the misconceptions in there because the right answer and the right way of doing it they've already been exposed to and I guess the point I'm trying to make here is you can't know what the wrong way is unless you know what the right way is before if that makes sense so possibly that's the way around it but the other paper that fascinated me um, is this, and it's called <laughs> a really catchy title here. How do I get my students over their alternate conceptions, brackets, misconceptions for learning? And that's by uh, Joan Lucoriello and David Naff. And they introduced the concept of refutational texts. And that—that that is the the essence behind this is. These are worked examples or even notes that you give to kids that actually confront the misconception head on. They introduce a misconception, they refute it and they offer a new alternate theory that proves to be more satisfactory. So an example might be um, when you actually give kids notes on adding fractions instead of just saying this is how you add fractions you might say something like this. Some students think you can just add numerators and denominators when adding fractions together. You can't. If you could, then one quarter plus one quarter will be two eighths, which is just one quarter. And in, so we know when in fact we know that one quarter plus one quarter must be equal to two quarters and maybe show it as a diagram or something like that. So here we get the flip side of this. In early skill acquisition, we're actually confronting the misconceptions head on. We're writing them down, we're explicitly stating them. The logic being, if kids are aware of these misconceptions, they're less likely to make the mistake. So... I'm not saying I know what's right or wrong here, but there you kind of contrast in views. I'm leaning towards teach kids the right way first, but then definitely don't shy away from these misconceptions. Definitely expose kids to these mes- misconceptions. Definitely discuss the misconceptions, confront them head on, and then show kids a better way of doing it, why their misconceptions are wrong. I think that's absolutely crucial. Not just saying this is the wrong way to do it, how do we know it's the wrong way to do it? How can we convince each other that it's the wrong way to do it? and then we can all move on from there. Phew, so they were my two big uh, big takeaways from that. So anyway, we, we've reached the end of the show there. No time for a podcast puzzle uh, this week. But all that remains for me to do is once again thank Daisy for being an absolutely fantastic guest. I had an absolute ball uh, talking to her. Absolutely wonderful stuff. And um, to thank as ever podcastthemes.com for the wonderful jazzy music that you've heard throughout this show. And to thank you, the loyal listener. Uh, it makes me so, so happy um, when people say on Twitter that they're enjoying these podcasts people are listening to it on the way to work it's uh, proving really valuable and effective cpd that that just makes me so so happy because i'm learning a ton of stuff from my guests it's it's revolutionized the way i teach it's led me to do a load of research to create my research page to really think about the things that i've been doing over the last 12 years and and evaluate them so if my guests are helping you have similar kind of thought processes then i'm just absolutely um over the moon so thank you so much for listening and as i say if you do have chance to give us a little review or something like that i will be over the moon and listen i have got some amazing guests lined up for the next few episodes so i can't wait to share them with you you take care of yourselves thanks so much for listening and bye for now